Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for broadcast on Saturday, November 20th, 2021. Right now, once again, it is Wednesday morning, and we have our friend Truthvids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 61 of this series, Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. In parts 25 through 31 of this series, we presented what we had designated as proof number 45, a discussion of specific New Testament verse misteachings, mistranslations, or corruptions in the epistles of Paul. Now we shall revisit Paul's epistles as they contain many standalone proofs, many testimonies which qualify as standalone proofs of the identity of the true children of Israel. Some of these proofs may include our own translations, and we will not preoccupy ourselves with explaining all of the nuances of translation which we had already discussed in proof number 45. However, we shall repeat what is necessary. Paul is of the utmost importance to an understanding of apostolic Christianity, since he was the first apostle who is recorded as having brought the gospel to Europe. And that must have been in accordance with the specific commission which the apostle had received from Christ to bring his gospel to a specific people, as well as Paul's own descriptions of his mission, which we see in the book of Acts. So for that same reason, we shall begin with Paul's commission and how he himself had understood his commission. Hello, Truthvids. Thank you for being here once again. Hey, Bill. Praise Yahweh. Thanks for having me again. So, so yeah, um, some of the following proofs that uh, we're going to get into over the next few weeks, we did briefly touch on in the mistranslations, but we only just said, you know, this is a min- mistranslation, this is a mistranslation. We didn't really actually go into that much detail about once you correct the translation, the significance and what it actually means, right? And uh, what what you begin to realize is how essential Paul was to uh, spreading Christianity, that he essentially brought it to Europe. And uh, w- when I first came to CI, w- when I was just learning it, and I was going through your podcast, and, and I didn't understand why you had all these, um, you know, against this heresy and against that heresy, because I'd never heard of them before. And, it, and it's only when you start getting really into CI that you realize that there's unique heresies within CI that 
the uh, Jews and, and um, you know, anyone who's followed the Jews have infiltrated and pushed all these liars, such as uh, Paul the traitor or Paul the um, false apostle, right? But that that's all to trick us and, and make us believe that he changed Christianity, but really he didn't. He was picked by God, by Christ himself, to spread uh, Christianity, not to the Gentiles, but to the actual dispersed Israelites. And once that's cleared up, you realize how important he was and that when you realize where he went, well, that will identify who the Israelites are. Right, Bill? Absolutely. And and it's that there are nuances of translation that were lost in translation because the translators themselves don't understand the narrative of the scripture. All of these promises were made for, by, and about the future children of Israel to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If Yahweh God made promises to the patriarchs and God keeps his promises, then the promises must be fulfilled in the manner in which the patriarchs had understood that they would be fulfilled. Abraham, and and this is a common explanation that we offer, Abraham had tried himself. He was 99 years old when Isaac was born. Abraham, being in his 90s, had himself tried to substitute a man of his own race, a steward of his own house, a man that he brought from his ancestral homeland in Haran to be with him in the land of Canaan, along with several other hundred of his people. And he brought this man as the steward of his house. So this man is the chief among all of Abraham's servants and and. The, the people that were with him in Canaan, the chief next, besides his wife, right? And, and Abraham tried to make that man his heir and substitute for his own seed, for his own descendant, where that man was certainly one of his kindred, or, or at least a member of his wider nation or race in Haran. So God rejected that God said to Abraham, no, your heir will come out of your own loins. And in an unexpected elderly state, Sarah had conceived a son and bore a son, and that was Isaac. And if Yahweh God goes to that length to keep his promise immediately, as an immediate example How do these churches today presume that they can substitute for Abraham's seed? It says, according to the promise, and Paul explains this, and we'll discuss this here today from Romans chapter 4. It says that, according to the promise, that Abraham's seed would become many nations. But these churches are, are trying to assert the notion that many nations somehow became Abraham's seed. Would Abraham himself have accepted that? Because Yahweh had refused Abraham when he tried to make a member of his own nation his heir. 
And Yahweh rejected that. So we can't imagine that either God or Abraham would accept the substitution which modern churches have tried to make. All of these promises down through the scripture from the time of Abraham in 2000 BC all the way to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah in, in 500 to 450 BC are recorded as being for one particular race of people and other races were rejected from being included. And that's very clear in Ezra and Nehemiah as late as 450 BC. The prophet Malachi probably came after that time and even he speaks of the racial aspects of the covenants of God and it's all throughout the New Testament, but for centuries men have debated that to the advantage of Jewry because replacement theology, this idea that Gentiles or non-Jews can become Christians, began by all, by all actual records, by the actual writings that have survived. This idea began in Judea in the second century AD. That's when it began. When the first struggles over the identity of the Israelites emerged, and all of the church writers who survived clearly accept replacement theology, the idea that other people besides Israelites, because they took for granted that the Jews represented the Israelites, the idea that other people besides Israelites could somehow become Christians, can somehow be included in these covenants, which an, an idea which is rejected over and over again in all of the prophets and scriptures of the Old Testament. It's rejected. If Christ came to fulfill the words of those prophets, you can be assured that God is not following the replacement theology of the churches. They're just deceiving themselves. And we will see that here, I pray. Yeah, you wonder if um, people around that time, you know, you know, white Christians began to realize what they were trying to do to make, you know, create this fake Christianity. If, if they realized at the point what their motive was, right, it must have been the Jews who concocted this uh, new Christianity, realizing that if all Europe accepted that they were the Israelites, well, what would that mean for the Jews, right? It was obviously a threat. So they instead created this uh, new Christianity, right? Absolutely. And, and it's, it's basically an innovation on scripture, on the promises of God, and the innovation is created by men. And, and Paul addressed that also. He addressed that in his epistle to the Galatians, which we will also see here. So, And then, would, Bill, just one more thing. Do you think um, Paul was the replacement for uh, Judas Iscariot? Where, um, you know, uh, the apostles picked Matthias, but um, we, we never really got everything from Matthias. But Christ actually personally chose the 12 apostles and, and he chose Paul himself, right? And, and we can see that Paul was picked to spread the gospel to all the uh, lost tribes, right? 
Well, well, right. I, I do believe that the apostles made mistakes, and the apostles were mere men. Christ often had to correct Peter. But I also believe that in Acts chapter 2, I believe it is, where Matthias was chosen, that Peter and the other apostles had good intentions. They had good intentions. And if you understand the drawing of lots, the lot has to fall to one person or another when it's drawn, when, when the lots are drawn. So Matthias, the apostles presumed that they could fulfill fill the office of Judas with this Matthias. What did his ministry come to? It came to nothing. What did the ministry of Paul of Tarsus come to? As Paul of Tarsus was directly chosen by Christ, if it weren't for Paul of Tarsus, we would not have Christianity today. Europe would not have had Christianity. Paul of Tarsus is the glue that stuck Christianity to Europe. The Jews had done their best to leverage the power of Rome to uh, and and their own political status within Rome, where they were highly influential in Rome, and they always had been. They tried to leverage that in order to get the Romans to persecute Christianity out of existence. Early Christian writers like Tertullian, and, and I've cited Tertullian and I believe Minucius Felix in, in this aspect, early Christian writers had asserted that the persecution of Christians at the hands of the Romans was instigated by the Jews. And we see that, we see that same pattern in the book of Acts, in Acts chapters 16, 17, 18, where, where the Jews are encouraging the Greeks and, and Romans to persecute Paul and his followers. So we see that same pattern beginning in the book of Acts, which Tertullian and Minucius Felix write about 250 years later, or, or actually maybe 200 years later. So that this is not an old phenomenon. This is not a new phenomenon where Jews are constantly despising Christianity in our media and books and movies today. We we in these last hundred years we have seen the same campaign against true Christianity that we see in the first, second, and third centuries, where when they can't obliterate Christianity from the modern dialogue, nevertheless, they infiltrate it with hundreds of heresies and, and corrupt it. This is constant. It's, it's a constant challenge for Christians to overcome. The only way to overcome them is by actually studying history and scripture and understanding what's really going on in the Bible. If you believe, and, and this is a, another aspect that we will probably, I, I hope, get to in the series. If you believe Christ, you cannot imagine that Jews understand the Bible. Because the apostles of Christ themselves explain that Jews aren't supposed to understand the Bible. That they're supposed to remain blind to the meaning of Scripture.
that without Christ you can't understand Scripture. That being said, and getting back to the original matters at hand, I think, if, if I remember them correctly, all of those promises were made for a specific and peculiar people who were supposed to remain a specific and peculiar people, and they were never for Jews. So, I don't know if that answers your question. I, it, I went on too long a digression, I believe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we do see that um, Paul brought it to all these places, and it was always um, the Jews trying to stop him, right? Wherever he went, uh, it just seems whenever you promote Christianity, they come out of the woodwork, right? That is spiritual as well, that they naturally, these, um, you know, descendants of Cain just hate Christianity. As as Christ said, if if they hated, hate you, they hated me first, right? Absolutely. Peter was what was, even though Peter attested in Acts, and it's true, that he was the first of the apostles to preach the gospel to non-Judeans, to, to, the, to the uncircumcised, right, at the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And Peter attested that he was first. And the earlier account in Acts of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, we can see not only from Peter's account, but from the account of that encounter with Philip as it's recorded in Acts, in I believe it's Acts chapter 8 or 9, that that Ethiopian eunuch was actually a Judean. Otherwise, Peter's a liar, and Peter's not a liar. So there's other ways to understand that the Ethiopian eunuch was actually a Judean because he was found traveling to the temple on a feast, and he was found, or from the temple after a feast, and he was found reading from Isaiah, and only a Judean would be doing those things because non-Judeans were not allowed to attend the temple after or during a feast. They weren't allowed into the temple at all. Ostensibly, reading Isaiah, that's the reason why the Ethiopian eunuch was on the road. And Philip encountered him there, and the Ethiopian eunuch wanted to understand Isaiah. So... He became a Christian. He must have been a Judean. The circumstances prove that. He couldn't have been an Ethiopian, or Peter is not telling the truth later on. But while the apostles were truthful, and we can't imagine them to be liars, Matthias's apostleship never materialized. Nothing ever became of it. There's no other mention of him in the book of Acts after that point. Now, that doesn't stand as proof alone, but Paul's apostleship did materialize. It did bear fruit, and all of these epistles which he writ, which he had written, and the book of Acts itself, because Luke was a companion of Paul. So we had the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts written by Luke, who was Paul's companion during the times when he wrote those things. And we have Paul's 14 epistles, which he had written at least several more than that, and he probably wrote many more than that. But we only have these 14 epistles which survived. 
There's an epistle to the Laodiceans that's missing. There's an, the very first epistle to the Corinthians is actually missing. The, the two epistles that we have to the Corinthians are actually second and third. They're not first and second. They probably should have been numbered second and third in, in order that we would understand that. But they are the only two surviving, so they were numbered first and second. Aside from that, where are the other apostles of Peter? Uh, or epistles, I'm sorry, of Peter. There, there are none except the two epistles which he had written to assemblies, Christian assemblies in Anatolia, which Paul had founded. And for that reason, he mentions Paul in the second of those epistles and defends Paul. Peter never thought that Paul was an, a, a false apostle, or he wouldn't have defended him in his second epistle. So Peter must, never having mentioned Matthias, must have simply quietly acknowledged that Paul was the legitimate apostle. So we see that the efforts of men, while very often they're made with good intentions, aren't really the will of God. And that God will fulfill his plan in spite of what men do, even if men have good intentions. And that's how I see the, the episode of Paul and Matthias and, and Peter. That Peter and the apostles had good intentions, but Yahweh had another plan. In order to stick Christianity to Europe, you had to have a knowledge of history, and Paul had to be able to explain to these nations in Europe why they should accept Christ. And he did explain that. But the churches ignore that language in his epistles and gloss over it and attempt to portray Paul as going to non-Israelites. And with that, they attempt to fold everybody in the world into the Christian faith, and everybody in the world doesn't belong. So it, it's a deception, but it's a deception that began in the second century AD when True apostolic Christianity, except for Paul's epistles, was persecuted out of existence, and true apostolic Christians were driven underground in, into secret places. Otherwise, they would be martyred. They would be killed just for being Christians. So, when Christianity finally got so popular that it had to emerge and come back into the public limelight. It wasn't true apostolic Christianity. It was a replacement, Christ, a replacement theology type of Christianity, which was more amenable to the Jews because it did not challenge the the their lies about their identity. And and that's another complex subject. Going back to the commission of Paul from Christ, and we have this numbered as proof number 74. 
and and that's another problem. I noticed that back in parts 11 and 12, I actually have two proof number 37s. So we have a bonus proof in there. <laughs> this should be proof number 75, but that's okay. We'll leave it at 74. We'll leave the numbering and the error intact because just like the apostles, we're not perfect either, right? So it's going to be 101 proofs, technically. It might be 102 or 3. It, it's Why not if, if we can present them? We'll, we'll see what unfolds in the in the months to come. I think we'll be here for another 10 podcasts at least. It seems that way anyway. It might go quicker. When we get to archaeological evidence and things like that, it might go quicker. This is Paul's commission from Christ, and it's proof number 74 in our list. Paul of Tarsus had been persecuting Judean Christians, and especially those who had moved outside of Jerusalem to Damascus after he witnessed the stoning of Stephen, which is recorded at the end of Acts chapter 7. Then, after the road to Damascus event in Acts chapter 8, where Christ had appeared to him, we read that he is taken to Damascus to the home of a man named Hananias, a man who was ostensibly a Christian. But Hananias was dubious of Paul's intentions, as he knew that he had been persecuting Christians. So we read in Acts chapter 9, And Hananias replied, speaking to Christ, who also appeared to him in a vision, Prince, I have heard from many concerning this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and thus he has authority from the high priests to bind all of those, meaning to imprison them, all of those being called by your name. But the prince said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel by me, who is to bear my name before both the kings, the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. And as we have already explained, back there in proof number 45, right? The King James Version has Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. However, the particle joining the words, te, joining the phrases, I should say, the particle joining the phrases does not translate simply into the English word and, as does the particle kahi, and I'll, I'll kind of explain that. Kahi often appears with te together in, in Greek formulas, in, in Greek grammar, and it does here because it's the word kahi, which is a simple conjunction meaning and, or also, in some contexts, some contexts, or even then. And kahi appears between the words nations and kings. But te appears in, in a place which would plant it between the phrases nations and kings and the children of Israel. That is a te, not a kahi. It's a different conjunction. And Nuances of translation are often lost when the result is not amenable to church doctrine, right? And, and that's just a fact of the translations in Scripture. 
So in his Greek-English lexicon, Joseph Thayer states that te differs from the particle kahi, the usual word which is translated as and, where kahi is conjunctive, but te is adjunctive, and as and, and I'm going to quote Thayer, Kahi introduces something new under the same aspect, yet as an external addition, whereas Te marks it as having an inner connection with what precedes. So where it says in our translation, nations and kings, rather than write and the sons of Israel, because the te designates or represents the fact that the phrase sons of Israel or children of Israel, it's actually sons in Greek, because that has an inner connection with what precedes, which is nations and kings, I simply wrote of the sons of Israel because that's the best way to represent that meaning in, in English. So it's nations and kings of the sons of Israel in our Christogenian New Testament translation for that reason, because that conjunction te marks the phrase sons of Israel as having an inner connection with nations and kings. So first, the commission reflects the beginning of the fulfillment of the promises made to the fathers, which Paul had said that Christ had come to fulfill, as we discussed just last week in our last proof in relation to Romans chapter 15. So with that, it is also evident that the commission follows those promises. As Yahweh had told Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, and I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Now, there were many other similar promises made which repeated this promise to Isaac and Jacob. But this is the entire basis right here for the faith of Abraham, because this is what Abraham believed. He believed God when he was told these things, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. How did he believe God? Because he did what Yahweh God had requested for him to do in connection with these promises. He picked up and left where he was and, and left Haran and packed up his belongings and moved to the land of Canaan in connection with these promises. So his actions demonstrate his belief. So Secondly, Bill, would most uh, Bible 
commentators and you know when they link verses to all other verses would they actually link these two verses together but then imagine that it's just believers instead of his seed right they can't link these two verses together and i don't think they do i might be wrong but i really don't think they do I, I could look it up right now in, in, in the Nestle A-Land Novum Testamentum Grece and see, let's see what they cross-reference. But the Novum Testamentum Grece cross-references are often, not always, but often better than the ones found in, in mainstream Bibles, right? The cross-references aren't part of the text. The cross-references are simply the way that the editors that publish those Bibles think that verses should be connected. And, and usually, they're terrible. So let's go to Acts chapter 9.15. And I can't take the time here to look up the passages that are cross-referenced, but we have 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 25, and Romans chapter 9, verses 21 through 23 are cross-referenced. But none of the promises to Abraham are cross-referenced. None. Or Jacob or Isaac. So no, I guess they don't, right? I, I can't go across the room and get my King James Version right now and, and try to see what that cross-references. But I'm sure it's not going to cross-reference what should be cross-referenced, which is Genesis chapter 17, verse 6. Or any of those other promises, such as Genesis chapter 15 or Genesis chapter 35, where the same promise was inherited by Jacob. So that's what should be cross-referenced because Christ came, as Paul plainly said in Romans chapter 9, and I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 15, Christ came to confirm the promises made to the fathers. So where if Paul said that, then when Paul receives his commission from Christ, that has to be reconciled to the promises made to the fathers. It, that's only common sense. And if they don't agree, then we have a problem. There's a problem. But they do agree once Acts chapter 9 verse 15 is properly translated, is properly made, it is made the translator that there's no perfect mechanical translation. What a translator should be tasked with is conveying the sense of what is said in one language and making it making that same sense appear in the language which he's translating the scripture into. So a grammarian might argue with me, might be able to argue with me over my translation. But the grammarian is not, unless he's agreeing with what I've written, he might have a better way to do it, but if he doesn't convey that same sense, that, and, and that same sense being that the sons of Israel have an inner connection with those nations and kings, if he doesn't think of a way in English to express that same sense, then he's lying. So, having spoken my piece about that... 
The secondly, when Paul was given this commission, which was a relatively short time after the crucifixion of Christ, perhaps a couple of years, there was no king in Judea, never mind kings, plural. So the commission must not have been for Jews. Furthermore, the Jews themselves did not even have their own nation in a political sense of the term, since Judea was only a Roman province inhabited by Greeks and Romans as well as Israelites and Edomites and even other Canaanites. So, during the entire period from the death of the first Herod in 4 AD to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Jerusalem and Judea only had a king for three years when Agrippa I was given the privilege by Rome from 41 to 44 AD. His son Agrippa II was only king of Chalcis in Syria, but not of Judea, which reverted to a tetrarchy upon the death of his father. So no Jew ever had a king or a kingdom, and from that time, Jews have only been guests of other kings in other kingdoms. Later, in Acts chapter 22, when Paul had addressed the Judeans in Jerusalem after he had been arrested there, he once again described the commission which Christ had given to him, where he said, And he said to me, Go, because I shall send you off to distant nations. So Paul was told by Christ to go to far-off nations. And the nations of Europe must be the nations of Israel to which he was sent. Then Luke recorded the reaction of the Jews. In that same place, Acts chapter 22, in the very next verse, Now they listened until this word, and raised their voice, saying, Take such as him from the earth, for it is not fit that he lives. So the only thing Paul said for which the Jews wanted to kill him was that he was commissioned to take the gospel of Christ to the twelve tribes of Israel which were scattered abroad. And that's probably when, um, well, a few decades after, right, that some of the Jews started to uh, concoct um, this other Christianity and Gnosticism and all that to go in and basically corrupt Christianity if they can't stop it, right? Right, and Paul spoke about their constant, that the Judaizers constantly infiltrating the churches. He spoke about that. It's in the book of Acts. It's, it's in the epistle to the Galatians. It's in several of the other epistles. He warned about it. So even later, even later than Paul's arrest that we just discussed in Acts chapter 22, even later, before he was sent to Rome in chains, so this is about a little over two years later, Paul had spoke before Porcius Festus and Herod Agrippa II. The year is 60 AD, perhaps. And we cannot imagine that Paul's words are contrary to his commission. 
Rather, they are consistent with the fulfillment of his commission. So in Acts chapter 26, Luke records him as having said, and now, and we just read this last week in connection with Romans chapter 15, and now for the hope of the promise having been made by God to our fathers, I stand being judged, for which our 12 tribes, serving in earnest, serving in earnest night and day. Now, most of those 12 tribes are blind to their history as ancient Israel. As we've already discussed, that the children of Israel were supposed to be blind. They were prophesied to be blind, and they were pagans. But, as we've seen in history and prophecy, the children of Israel were supposed to be pagans at this time. It was prophesied that they would be pagans, and the historic evidence, when they're being taken into captivity by the Assyrians, shows that they were pagans for which our twelve tribes serving in earnest day and night hope to attain, concerning which hope I am charged by the Judeans. So Paul is saying that the real reason why the Judeans had him locked up was because they didn't want him taking the gospel abroad. That goes right hand in hand with, with the parable, the, the sayings of Christ, it wasn't really a parable, the sayings of Christ to his enemies, which said that, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, and I'm paraphrasing, you bar the door to the kingdom of God, you don't enter into it yourselves, and you prevent those who are entering from entering. That that goes so perfectly with that parable. Paul's words here in, in, in Acts chapter 26, that we should be able to see who it is that was infiltrating, corrupting, persecuting, and preventing Christianity, the spread of Christianity. And you see that just around the world all the time, right? Um, you, know, you know, even um, in... Just normal stuff when someone comes up with a great invention that will benefit the whole race immediately the Jews seize it patent it and then they transform it in into some way that they can um, you know take money off us bit by bit and uh, you know stop us all living happily ever after right I, I mean I know that's a silly way of saying it but they're always doing that right with everything well, well, there is a lot of evidence of that, right, in, in the work of, like, Nikola Tesla. I wouldn't make Tesla's work to be what a lot of conspiracy theorists say that it is, but I, I do believe that Nikola Tesla had a lot of groundbreaking inventions that he wanted to be openly shared with everybody, and that has been more or less suppressed and withheld from the public. But it's even more evident in the pharmaceutical industry, where it's discovered, and, and this is basically openly mentioned by them, that they go into the rainforests of South America, or, or they go into ancient literature, or, or any way that they could find a natural substance which has some healing benefit. And once they discover that a particular natural substance has a healing benefit, well, they can't patent the natural substance because it occurs in nature, or at least they're not supposed to be able to patent it. So they will withhold the information and they will 
use their laboratories to, these are the pharmaceutical companies, to concoct a way to synthesize the molecule so that they can make a synthetic version of it, which hopefully has the same effect or the same beneficial therapeutic use. And they sell the synthetic version because they can patent that. And they market that to cure the disease or or the malady that the natural herb can perfectly and and perhaps even better provide relief for in in a natural manner. And and yes, they've even I've read articles. Of course, the the perspective is different, but I've read articles on that very thing in the Wall Street Journal and, and other major media publications. And, and they don't have any moral conscience or, or any moral problem with that, with withholding cures for men so that they could profit from it. They don't have a, a moral problem with that. Yeah, it's their their whole perspective on life, right? And um, and I'm sure that um, again, it might be a conspiracy theory, but that they've been able to make engines that can just run on water, etc., so that we don't need, um, you know, the, the Arab petrol anymore. That we could happily live without them, but that they need that that oil industry to keep that power and control over us, right? So they'll never let it happen, right? Well, well, right, and that's what prohibition was really about. And I could get into that digression as well. When <laughs> they barred alcohol, it actually prevented a lot of farmers and poor common folk in America, especially in Appalachia, from making their own alcohol, which is not that difficult to do at home. And using it to power their, their their tractors and their automobiles. And and I came to understand that when I was a boy and my grandmother had told me that before Prohibition, her father had built race cars that he raced with, not professionally, but in, in am, on amateur race circuits in New England, he built his own cars from components and and powered them with alcohol that they produced on his father's farm. So the prohibition era came in and and prevented that and he stopped building cars, he stopped racing cars because he couldn't afford gasoline. So yes, that they have used politics quite often to stifle innovation so that we're beholden to their corporations. And at the time, that was David Rockefeller and, and Standard Oil. Okay, that's also a digression. Where Paul of Tarsus had professed, and I'm sorry, there's one more attestation of Paul that I'm skipping over. It, it's at the very end of Paul's ministry, we read in Acts chapter 28, that Paul had professed that for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. Now, when Paul said Israel, he wasn't imagining non-Israelite Gentiles. He was imagining those 12 tribes scattered abroad, which he had mentioned in Acts chapter 26. That's the hope of Israel in Acts chapter 28. It's not some different Israel. You have to look at Paul's own attestations, his own professions, and understand these 
terms the way Paul understood them if you want to understand what apostolic Christianity truly was. Where Paul of Tarsus had professed his intention of bringing the gospel of Christ to the twelve tribes of Israel, he brought it to Anatolia and to Europe. He made it as far as Rome in the west and Illyria and Macedonia in the north which is evident in Romans chapter 15 and in the book of Acts. In Romans 15, he expressed the desire to go as far as Spain, but he never made it that far, in spite of some apocryphal claims. He never made it to Spain or Britain. But this was in fulfillment of his commission to profess the name of Christ before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel, and to bring the gospel to distant nations. We cannot imagine that Paul failed to fulfill the task which he had been given, and we cannot imagine that Paul had changed the nature of that task, or that he could not, or, or if he did, he could not have claimed to come in the name of Christ. So at the time, at the same time, Paul professed that he labored for the hope which had been given to the children of Israel. He made no other profession. He made no profession about hope for, for non-Israelite Gentiles. <clears throat> so this leads us to discuss several other topics which are also basically aspects of this same account and which are also therefore explained in Paul's epistles. The first of those is identifying the nations and kings of Paul's commission. I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah, uh, I know we've probably said it a few times, but, um, you know, if Paul's given a commission to go off to far off nations uh, who are the children of Israel, then you've only got to look where he went, right? And he went straight to Europe. Uh, I know we've said it before, he could have went right to Arabia. I mean, it was right next to uh, Damascus, right? Or he could have went to Egypt, or he could have went, you know, uh, further east to Asia or, or further south to Africa, but he only went to Europe. So they must be where the children of Israel were, right? It's the only logical explanation. Right, it's it's evident that Paul never went further east that than perhaps Damascus. That there are times when he was in a desert in what's called Arabia, but he wasn't preaching to Arabs in that desert. He was only passing through, or, or separating himself for a time from from society so that he could study. And, and that's attested in Galatians chapter 1. When he went to Arabia after the, his, his experience on the road to Damascus when he was released, he went to Arabia and it's evident that he went there so that he could study the scriptures in, in solitude. So after he did that, he returned again to Damascus. That's in Galatians chapter 1. So... It's evident that during that time, it becomes evident in the course of his ministry that during that time, early in his ministry, he simply isolated himself for a time and examined the scriptures uh, 
so that he could reconcile Christianity with his knowledge of the prophets. And the result, it is in all of his, his epistles where he's preaching to these nations that they are Israelites, which we will hopefully get into now. Few people realize that when the promises were made to Abraham, sometime around 2000 BC, or not long after, there were no Germans, there were no Irishmen or Englishmen, there were no Scandinavians, no French, there were not even any Spaniards, Italians, or Greeks as we know them from later history. While there may have been Japhethites in various places in Europe, since Moses describes some of the Genesis 10 nations as having been Thracians or Ionians or Tartesians, who, along with Meshech and Tubal, were scattered around the Black Sea and along the southern coasts of Europe, the nations of modern Europe, or the Europe of Paul's time, were all formed by later immigrant tribes. These tribes were, for the most part, descended from the children of Israel. Earlier in this series of proofs, we discussed the Roman origination from the Trojans and the connections of the Trojans to ancient Judah, who, along with the Danan Greeks, had evidently migrated away from Israel at the time of the Exodus. They didn't go with Moses. They crossed the sea instead. And that's attested by Diodorus Siculus. We also discussed how the Dorians had come from Israel. How the Phoenicians, who made many colonies in Europe and on the coast of northern Africa, were actually the Israelites of Tyre. And then how the Cimmerians and Scythians, among whom we would count the Massagetae, Sacae, or Saxons, Goths, Alans, Huns, and other tribes, were Israelites of the Assyrian deportations. Ultimately, it is these tribes, along with a few other related groups, who formed the nations of modern Europe. So in Romans chapter 4, Paul described the nations to whom he had been sent as the descendants of Abraham, where he wrote, in part, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, and we will get to that momentarily, and skipping ahead to verse 16, therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace, to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not any seed except for Abraham's, but to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but also to that which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, the law was only given to Israel, but Abraham believed that his seed or offspring would become many nations in spite of the law. So the promise did not hinge on the keeping of the law. In Galatians, Paul explains that the law followed that promise by 430 years and that the law does the giving of the law does not change the nature of the promise that the promise is irrevocable in spite of the law. Rather, 
Paul defined what he means by the faith of Abraham as what it was that Abraham himself had believed as he continued and wrote. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were, because those nations didn't exist yet, but in the scriptures, in the promises, God is exist, it is naming them as though they were existing because he was going to make it come true. He was going to keep his promise. So Paul says in, in relation to that, in reference to Abraham, who against hope, because it was impossible, seemingly impossible for Abraham to have children, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken. Now, this is right in the King James translation. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Paul called Abraham, speaking to Romans, right? A Nigerian cannot imagine that Paul was speaking to him. A Chinaman cannot imagine that Paul was speaking to him. Paul was speaking to Romans. Speaking to Romans, Paul called Abraham the father of us all. And earlier in the chapter, he referred to him as our forefather. Because Paul knew that the nations to whom he had brought the gospel were actually descended from Abraham. So shall thy seed be. Then he wrote that God calls those things as though, which are as, as though they were not, meaning, I'm sorry, this is, I'm confusing myself. Paul wrote that God calls those things which are not as though they were, meaning that he spoke of nations that did not yet exist when the promise to Abraham was made, and they did not yet exist because they would come from Abraham's seed, which had not yet been born when the promise was made. But they did exist in Paul's own time, and one of those nations was that of the Romans, as we've already demonstrated, I think, all the way back in, like, Proof 12 or something like that. So what Abraham... Yes, so when he says uh, there'll be um, a company of nations and a great nation, he's speaking like, well, almost 4,000 years uh, of prophecy, right? That's pretty amazing. Well, right, absolutely. I mean, from the time those words were spoken to Jacob, probably about 1800 BC. And... That, that he would be a great nation and a company of nations. That wasn't fulfilled completely until the expansion of the British Empire much later in, in the, the 17th and 18th centuries when those words took their full fruition. That's 3,500 years, right? Now, even if you want to count that from the settlement of, of the Saxons, Cimmerians, Galatahi in Europe, that, that is still 
as long as 2300 years. Yeah, so we see that uh, some prophecies took a very long time that Yahweh made us wait until the right time, right? Well, well, right, absolutely, because the, the history of the expansion of Christianity, that the ministry of Christ and, and everything that would happen in the revelation which he prophesied, it, it's all predicated on the seven years on the seven times of punishment which the children of Israel had to suffer. So even though Christ came and, and suffered for them and died on their behalf so that they would be freed from the judgments of the law and all these other things that are going on, all these other prophecies that are being fulfilled, they're still being punished and they have to be punished for seven times. And then there's a prophecy, time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah. So all of these other things had to be fulfilled also. And and the revelation is basically a prophecy of what's happening is happening because of the punishment of the children of Israel. That they're still being punished. You have to understand Daniel, as we've already explained here, in order to understand the revelation. And, and other prophets as well. But it all fits into a once you understand what we call christian identity that the people of israel are actually the modern white european nations it all fits perfectly all of this history all of this biblical history all of the statements in the epistles of paul all of the visions in the revelation which are clearly manifest in european history it all fits perfectly, and it all agrees with all of the words of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and, and the other 11 Hebrew prophets, which we have in our Old Testament. Perhaps it's the other 13. I, I, I lost count. I'm sorry. Okay. So what Abraham believed, as Paul had also explained in that chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 4, is that his own offspring would become many nations and that those nations would inherit the world. That is the faith of Abraham of which Paul spoke in Romans. And that it is what Abraham believed. That is what Abraham believed to which Paul referred in all of his other epistles. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells his readers, who are ostensibly Dorian Greeks, or I should say who are evidently, because there is much evidence to substantiate it, who are evidently Dorian Greeks, as that was the tribe which had settled at Corinth, that now I do not wish you to be ignorant, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all had passed through the sea. And all up to Moses had immersed themselves in the cloud and in the sea. And all had eaten the same spiritual food, and drank all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of an attending spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. We have already discussed the historical evidence from Flavius Josephus, 
and the apocryphal First Maccabees, that the king of Sparta, who was also a Dorian, acknowledged that he was of the seed of Abraham, and that the high priest in Jerusalem agreed around 160 or so years before the birth of Christ. Then, later in that chapter, Paul makes a broader statement where he says in verse 18, Behold, Israel, down through the flesh. This is the Christogenian New Testament. Now, the way that word kata is translated, I could have written, Behold, Israel, according to the flesh. And the same phrase appears concerning Israel in Romans chapter 9, and we will get to that later in the series. Behold, Israel, down through the flesh, are not those who are eating the sacrifices, partners of the altar. Paul is speaking about their paganism. The King James Version has that verse in part to read, Behold Israel after the flesh. But the Greek preposition, now, now that's probably an archaic use of the word after. But the Greek preposition kata does not really mean after, as we use the term today. It commonly means down through, or in non or down, or in non-literal contexts, it means according to, as it was often translated elsewhere in the King James Version. In fact, at the at the heading of each of the Gospels, it says kata mateon, or kata markon, or kata luke, kata john, kata johannes. It, it means kata mateon means according to Matthew. And all we see is that preposition kata before the name of the apostle. And that's in all of the manuscripts of the the Greek manuscripts of the Gospels. You you could open the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Greca and see at the top Kata Lucan. Lucan is the accusative form of the name Lucas or Luke. Kata Lucan means according to Luke. So Kata Sarkes, which we would see here in the Greek in, in this passage would be according to the flesh. In other words, Paul is speaking about real Israel, the descendants of the ancient Israelites, when he says, as the King James Version has it, behold Israel after the flesh. So then he makes a parenthetical remark. What then do I say? That that which is sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? And, and there he's dismissing their idolatry. He's not respecting their idols. And he's telling his readers that he doesn't respect his, their idols. So they shouldn't respect them either, right? Because these people that are making sacrifices on the altars of idols are really making sacrifices on the altars of nothing. That's the point Paul's making there. And then he goes on to say, immediately after that, as Israel, according to the flesh, is still the subject, rather, 
that whatever the nation sacrifice, now of course the King James Version has Gentiles there, right? But he's speaking about Israel according to the flesh. That whatever the nation sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to Yahweh. Now, I do not wish for you to be partners with demons. And the demons are nothing, right? Because the demons are nothing because there's a promise. In the Old Testament, there are many promises that they shall be as though they had never been, that the gods of the nations are vanity, they are nothing. Because in the end, all of the demons and all of the walking devils are going to be destroyed by God. So Paul wanted his readers to account them as nothing. And therefore, he doesn't want them to be partners with demons. Now, there is no record of any Jews in Corinth or the surrounding nations where they were practicing idolatry. Rather, the idolatry was being practiced by the pagan nations of Europe in and around Greece, that which the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And those people had descended from those same 12 tribes of Israel to which Paul had been sent. So he calls them Israel after the flesh in order to distinguish them from those imposter Edomites in Judea who are calling themselves Israel. It's very simple. And Bill, I believe, um, I can't remember if it, if it was Herodotus or someone, he, he even suggested that um, a lot of the Greek gods came from the East, right? That they were influenced, uh, you know, thousands of years before his time. He might have even said, um, you know, I don't think he said Canaanite specifically, but it was definitely that's where they got a lot of the adultery from, right? All these other gods and uh, the pantheon. Yeah, you know, Herodotus did, he didn't use the term Canaanite. The term Canaanite does not exist as far as I've ever seen and as far as the lexicons attest. The term Canaanite does not exist in Hellenistic literature or in Greek classical literature. The Greeks called those people Phoenicians. They named all the people in the area as Phoenicians, regardless of their particular race or tribe. They used a geographic distinction. So, Herodotus did describe many of the gods that had come from the East or had connections to the East, and, and the other ancient Greek writers also. For, for example, Dionysius is said in some sources to have come from Syria. And when Perseus had saved Andromeda from the sea monster, that was supposedly an event which took place in Joppa. And Flavius Josephus actually wrote that you could still see the chains by which Andromeda had been bound when the sea monster was going to devour her or, or attack her. And Perseus had rescued her. So there are, many, there are also many other connections. Strabo had written that you could still see the place in Syria 
where Zeus had cast out the serpent. So imagine that, under the ground, down to the earth, out of out of heaven. So yes, there are many connections with the East in Greek mythology and in the Hellenistic pantheon. And, and that's because they understood that their origins in the East. They understood that civilization or, or culture had come from the East, not from the North and, and didn't originate in Greece itself. In the opening four books of his Library of History, for all its faults, and, and I fault it because when he spoke of Ethiopians and Egyptians and Assyrians, he only used the Greek names for the gods or goddesses that he was referencing. In the opening four volumes of Diodorus Siculus's Library of History, or the opening four books, he, he concentrates on, he focuses on describing the theology or cosmology, if you will, of Assyrians, Ethiopians, Egyptians, and Greeks. And he does that to facilitate his assertion that all of these nations had a common cosmology and a common belief system and a common origination. That's why he did it, to show that. He understood that the Ethiopians, or I should say, from our perspective, the people of Cush, the Cushites, and the Assyrians and the Egyptians all had common beliefs, and he attempted to reconcile them in those four volumes, that they had a common culture, that these great civilizations that predated Hellenistic and classical Greece were actually all a part of a, the same common culture which the Greeks had. So things like that are indicative of ancient attitudes towards race and society. They knew that Egypt was white at one time, even in its yeah, fallen been much state. Yeah, closer in time then. Right. Um, Bill, do you, do you, um, I don't feel I've ever asked you this, but do you think uh, that the whole Trinity thing originates with um, Nimrod and his mother slash wife and that when he allegedly died – uh, she tried to claim that his son was him incarnate. I don't know, you know, there's a story, but I'm not, you know, it's not actually part of the scripture, but do you think that's where uh, the Trinity could have originated from and how it spread to every culture? Because after that, all the tongues were confused, right? Now, I think the idea of a Trinity concept is actually much older than that. It probably originates with ancient Sumer, which I believe was a Nephilim culture originally. The Sumerian King's List reflects Nephilim. Gilgamesh is actually listed on the ancient lists of Sumerian kings that have been dug out of the ground. And Gilgamesh is reckoned as one of the giants in the literature of the Dead Sea Scrolls. That there are clear understandings of this. And, and we have the Nephilim I believe that Sumer was a Nephilim culture, which was mixed with an Adamic culture. And that reflects the truth of, of what we see in Genesis chapter 6 and later chapters of Genesis. 
Gilgamesh was the king of Iraq, which overlaps, I believe Gilgamesh predated Nimrod. Gilgamesh was the king of Iraq, and we see in Genesis chapter 10 that Iraq, Nimrod being one of the... Nimrod was the first man of the Adanic race to try to build an empire, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Iraq and Akkad, which was later the capital or, or, or the heart, I should say, of the Assyrian nation, and Kalna in the land of Shinar, which is an obsolete term for Babylonia or Chaldea that they all fit. But Babylonia and Chaldea are terms which did not appear until much later. So Shinar was the eldest term, apparently, for lower Mesopotamia, where Babylon was later built, right? So Nimrod was basically, once you understand that these Nephilim were already long present in the, that area, that then you'll see that Nimrod was basically only creating an empire that had combined those peoples in, in with his own. The, the mixing, the race mixing, never stopped after Genesis chapter 6. A few hundred years or a few thousand years, it picked up again later on. That's absolutely clear from the Old Testament histories of the Israelites. That being said, in Paul's epistle to the Galatians, we find much the same evidence that he was writing to people of the 12 tribes of Israel. But our translation of several passages in Galatians chapter 3 is contrary to the translations of the churches and especially in verses 15 and 29, even though we would assert that our translation is grammatically correct. We have already discussed these at length in the earlier presentations where we discussed the mistranslations in Paul, so we will not go into detail here. However, here we shall cite our own translation, the Christianian New Testament, but even in spite of these mistranslations in the King James Version and others, the text of Paul's epistle is clear, and we will discuss that as well, that he was speaking to descendants of the ancient Israelites. So, we shall first cite Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, where Paul had written, just as Abraham, and, and we're going back to this definition of the faith, that the faith is what Abraham believed, that just as Abraham had trusted Yahweh and it was accounted to him for righteousness, then you know that they, from faith, they are sons of Abraham. They from what faith? How about they from the faith which is what Abraham believed, right? And the writing having foreseen that from faith, Yahweh would deem the nations righteous, the nations which were promised to come from Abraham's seed, announced to Abraham beforehand that in you shall all the nations be blessed. 
So Paul is saying that that promise was meant for those nations which would come from Abraham. Paul defined that faith in Romans chapter 4 as what Abraham believed. Abraham, I'll tell you one thing, Abraham did not believe in niggers. He didn't believe that his seed would become many niggers or many Chinamen or many of anybody of any other race. So they from the faith are the products of what Abraham had believed, which was the promise that his seed would become many nations and that those nations would inherit the world. There is no other faith of Abraham described in Scripture for which it was accounted to him for righteousness. But in Isaiah chapter 45, we read, In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. So our interpretation of Galatians chapters 3 through 6 is fully coherent, fully agrees with not only the promises to Abraham, but the words of the prophets later on. Paul proceeds by stating in verse 9 of Galatians chapter 3, so those from faith are blessed, along with the believing Abraham, meaning the nations, the descendants of Abraham. Then he goes on to explain that righteousness does not stem from the law, since men cannot keep the law without sinning. And now we shall read verses 13 and 14. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Redeemed us, meaning Paul and the Galatians. Paul and the Galatians. He's going to these 12 tribes. He's not going to anybody else. When he spoke to other people, such as the Ionian Greeks of Athens, he didn't say any of this. He never spoke on these terms. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse on our behalf, for it is written, Accursed is everyone who hangs upon a timber. In order that the blessing of Abraham would come to the nations at the hand of Christ Joshua, that we should receive the promise of the Spirit through the faith. Now, which nations are they? I know it's translated Gentiles in the King James Version and other versions, but which Gentiles are they? Which nations are they? They're the nations which were promised to come from Abraham's seed in those original promises, and they that the faith comes to those nations based on what Abraham believed. And Abraham believed that his offspring, nobody else, his offspring would become many nations. So the redeemed are those who were under the law, who needed to be redeemed. Nobody but those same 12 tribes can possibly fit into a need for that redemption. They needed to, re to be redeemed so that the promise to Abraham would be kept. That's the only reason why they needed to be redeemed, so that Yahweh could keep those promises to the fathers, so Christ came to confirm those promises to the fathers, period. The blessing would come upon the nations through Christ, but it would only come upon those nations to whom it was promised, who are the seed of Abraham through Jacob Israel. Therefore, now we will read the next verses of the chapter where Paul explained 
that same thing in his own way. Although, first he has a disclaimer in verse 15. He says, Brethren, I speak as befits a man, even a validated covenant of man. No one sets aside or makes additions to for himself. In other words, nobody can add themselves into themselves or others into the covenants and promises which Yahweh God had made to Abraham and to his descendants. But of those descendants, Ishmael was rejected and Esau was disqualified from the inheritance because, as Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 12, he was a fornicator, which from the evidence in Genesis is revealed to be a race mixer. He took Canaanite wives. Neither did the later descendants of Abraham with Keturah have any share in the promises. They only fell to Jacob. And that's very clear in the accounts in Genesis. Therefore, referring to the promises which were made to Abraham and carried down to only certain of his descendants, and not to all of them. Paul wrote in verse 16 of Galatians chapter 3, Now to Abraham the promises have been spoken, and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, as of many, but as of one, and to your offspring, which are anointed. Now I say this, a covenant validated beforehand by Yahweh. The law, which arrived after 430 years, does not invalidate, by which the promise is left idle. For if from law, the inheritance is no longer from promise, but to Abraham through a promise, Yahweh has given it freely. That's what Abraham believed. Abraham believed that that promise was only for his descendants, for his seed, and that's also what Paul defines as being the faith. The Israelites were sent off in punishment for breaking the law, but they would be redeemed in Christ on account of the promises to Abraham. As it is attested in Luke chapter 1 and in Romans chapter 15 and elsewhere in scripture. So moving to the end of the chapter, Paul makes a remark which is poorly understood, which is also poorly understood, and for that reason, it is poorly translated. We'll read the Christiania New Testament. There is not one Judean or Greek. There is not one bondman or freeman. There is not one male and female. For you are all one in Christ Yahshua. Now Christ is once again speaking to Galatians. So a Nigerian cannot pick this up, or a Chinaman, or a, a Latino South American. They cannot pick this up and imagine Paul is speaking to them. He's speaking to Galatians. For you are all one in Christ Yahshua. But if you are Christ's, then of the offspring of Abraham, you are heirs according to promise. There is not one Judean or Greek, as Paul was speaking to the twelve tribes, and there is no difference before God, 
between a Judean Israelite and a Greek Israelite. If they were at one time under the law, they were redeemed in Christ. We cannot skip the part here where Paul is saying that these are for people who were under the law. Nigerians and Latin American squat monsters and Chinamen were never under the law. But in verse 29, the structure of the Greek grammar is what is known as a conditional sentence. The word for then is the Greek word ara. According to Liddell and Scott, ara was generally used to describe a thing which is next in order after something, or something which explains what has preceded. Both of these uses are manifest where ara also appears in different types of conditional sentences, sentences which contain that word for if. The Greek word ara often serves to introduce the apodosis in a conditional sentence, which is the then part, a clause which answers to the protasis, which is the if part. So, for example, if it is raining, then I cannot go fishing. But there are several types of conditional sentences. They can either express factual implications, or they can express, as that one does, hypothetical situations and their consequences, if it is raining. That's a hypothetical situation, because I really don't know if it's raining not or not. I don't know yet whether it's raining or not when I make that statement, if it is raining. But then I cannot go fishing. That's the consequence of the hypothetical situation. We see conditional sentences using the same Greek words for if and then in Matthew 12, 28 and Paul's writing in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8. And in both instances, if the protasis, the first part of the sentence is true, I'm sorry, the second part, the protasis, if the protasis is true, which is the clause following the if, then the apodosis must also be true, which is the clause following the then. These are conditional sentences which express factual implications. So in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, we read, but if I cast out devils by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So if the kingdom of God in the person of Christ and his disciples was not manifest, then Christ was not casting out devils by the Spirit of God. In other words, if one clause is true, then the other clause must also be true in that type of conditional sentence. Christ did not say to the Pharisees in Matthew that the kingdom of God may come unto you or will or shall come unto you in the future. He said, it is come unto you. So by the grammar of each clause, we see that both clauses in his statement must be true. This is a conditional sentence which expresses a factual implication. Or, as Liddell and Scott have it in their definition, something which explains what has preceded. Similarly, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8, we read, But if ye be without chastisement, whereof ye are all partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons.
So if one is a bastard, then one is not a partaker in the chastisement of the children of God. As the word of God says to the children of Israel, that you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So again, if one clause is true, that you are that you are being chastised, then the other clause must also be true, that you're children and not a bastard. If you're not being chastised, then the other clause is true, that you're a bastard and not a son. So this here is also a conditional sentence which expresses a factual implication. The then part of Paul's statement is something which explains what has preceded, which is the if part of Paul's statement. Paul did not say in Hebrews that one may be a bastard or could be a bastard. So by the grammar of each clause, we once again see that both clauses must be true. This is because the verb in the apodosis is indicative. It's in a mood which expresses a definite statement. It's not subjunctive, expressing contingency or uncertain fulfillment, something that would or could be. So, here in Galatians 3.29, where Paul wrote that if you are Christ's, then of the offspring of Abraham, you are heirs according to the promise. Once again, the verb in the clause in the then side of the statement is indicative, expressing a definite statement. So this is also a type of conditional sentence which expresses a factual implication. If you are Christ's, then you are also Abraham's seed. Paul did not write that if you believe if you believe in Jesus, you may be, or you could be, or you shall be Abraham's seed in the manner in which the church is claimed. Both sides of the statement must be true. If you are of Abraham's seed, according to what Paul had explained in Galatians 3.16, then you are of Christ. Yeah, that uh, verse is always misused, right? That if you if you're Christ, then that means you're spiritually Abraham's seed, right? But clearly that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that both have to be correct. Only Abraham's seed are, are in Christ, and only the people in Christ are Abraham's seed, right? Right, exactly. Paul is teaching the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham as they were stated to Abraham. He, he's not teaching that these promises were fulfilled in some other offhanded way, but according to that which was written. And it's a historical fact that the Galatahi had descended from the Cymri or Kimroi of the Assyrian inscriptions, which was the name that the Assyrians gave to the children of Israel as they were being taken captive and replanted or resettled in places north of Assyria, around the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. So we see from history how Paul's letter, how his epistle is perfectly true. 
And we also see it from Scripture. We see it in the words of the prophets. Especially in Isaiah. So this brings us to Galatians chapter 4, which also further reinforces these assertions. Paul likens the children of Israel to a worldly servant, and he says, Now I say, for as long a time as the heir is an infant, he differs not at all from a bondman being master of all. But he is subject to guardians and stewards until a time appointed by the Father. Now this has nothing to do with Christ and everything to do with the fact that the children of Israel were kept under the law throughout their early history in this very manner. And that's why Paul is making this analogy. And that the Galatians were among them, or at least they are descended from them. So Paul continues to describe how they were released from the bondage of the law. So we read in the next three verses of Galatians chapter 4, just as we also, meaning himself and the Galatians, when we were infants, we were held subject under the elements of the society, meaning the law. And when the fulfillment of the time had come, Yahweh had dispatched his son, having been born of a woman, having been subject to the law, because the people of Judea, the Israelites of Judea, were still under the law when, when Christ was born, in order that he would redeem those subject to law. Nobody else was given the law except the children of Israel that we would recover the position of sons. And we will speak more about that phrase later on in the series when we talk about the proofs concerning the adoption. That, that also proves that these promises are explicit and exclusive to the children of Israel. So, finally, in the very next verse of Galatians chapter 4, we read, And because you are sons... Not because you became sons, believing in Jesus, and because you are sons, Yahweh has dispatched the spirit of his son into your heart, into our hearts, crying, Father, Father. And this shows that believing in Christ does not make one a son. Rather, one is a son first, and if he is a son, Yahweh God has sent Christ on account of that. So Paul struggled for the twelve tribes of Israel. And it is nations which descended from those tribes to which he had brought the gospel. Presenting our next few proofs, we will continue to demonstrate this truth in different ways from the epistles of Paul. Yeah, and um, overall, just going back to Abraham, you'd think, why go through all this trouble of making him wait and all that if it really didn't matter, right? The whole thing was just a waste of time because he's going to accept everybody anyway and they're all going to become Christians, right? It doesn't make sense at all. Only when you realize that all these nations, be, you know, came from Abraham's seed, that and that's what Christ was for, that he was spreading um, to reconcile them to him. Only then does it all make sense why he goes through all this trouble for that purpose, right? Right, absolutely. And he explains that, and, and I could have added that to this presentation. He explains that in Romans chapter 9. And, and he says in, in verse 6, For they are not all Israel which are of Israel, 
and neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. He's saying the same thing in different terms that he said here in Galatians, that not all of Abraham's seed were Abraham's children because Esau was a race mixer and he was disavowed and rejected for that reason by his own parents in the book of Genesis. In I think it's in chapters 27, 28, 29, I believe, where Rebecca had been distressed because Esau took the daughters of Heth as wives. And Rebecca then engineered a way by which I by which Jacob would receive the blessings rather than Esau. And then Rebecca expressed the concern that her life would be worthless if Jacob took wives of the daughters of Heth like Esau did, and she made sure that Isaac instructed him to go back to his ancient homeland to take wives of his own kin, which he did. And all that trouble was to show us that the race mixer Esau would be rejected and the son that obeyed his parents and married someone of his own race would inherit the promises of God. That has not changed to this very day. If we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which we have just discussed, Paul also warned the Corinthians where he brought up another episode of race mixing in the history of ancient Israel, which was when the sons of Israel had joined themselves to the daughters of Moab, and it was a great plague on Israel. In Numbers chapters 24 and 25, Paul raised that very example and warned them not to commit fornication as their fathers had committed fornication. And in one day, thousands of Israelites were destroyed. That's the exact example Paul brought up when he warned them not to commit fornication. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, he identifies Esau as a fornicator and a profane man, for which reason he lost his birthright. So we can see what Paul meant by that, by going back to those actual events when that happened in Genesis chapters 27 and 28. And it's all a clear thread. You're a race mixer. You're not inheriting the promises because the Israelites were white and they were commanded to stay that way. Yep. And there'll be um, a lot of Esau's in heaven, right? Who will uh, realize that they've got nothing and their life was pointless. Right. There'll be a lot of Esau's in heaven, but none of their children will be there. Yeah, exactly. Because a bastard shall not enter the congregation of Yahweh. And if you're without chastisement, then you're bastards and not sons. Therefore, we see that that commandment is still in full force and effect in the new covenant. Because Christ said, keep my commandments. And those are the commandments he was talking about. Those Old Testament commandments. This is all one story. It's not different stories. God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't throw away his plans and his promises and, and, and make them disposable so that he can pretend to keep them with other people. No, that's not what he does at all. It's ridiculous. 
you're actually blaspheming God when you make that assertion. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, as always. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thank you. Praise Yahweh, and good night.